Luke chapter 21, verse 20. Luke, Luke chapter 21, basically till chapter 24, describes the last week of Jesus' earthly ministry, the week leading up to his death on the cross. We, we, are, we know it as Passion Week. It's most likely Wednesday of that week. Jesus is being, going to be crucified on a Friday, and he's going to rise, rise from the dead early on a Sunday morning. And we're in the middle of what is called the Olivet Discourse. Um, this is Jesus' most exhaustive teaching on the events leading up to his second coming, his return, and the end of the age. It is given by Jesus to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, which is just outside of the East Gate in Jerusalem. It is just after the disciples in verse 5, according to uh, Luke's account and Matthew and Mark's account, Jesus' disciples were admiring the beauty of the temple, the uh, stones which adorned all of the, uh, the walls of the temple, these huge giant stones had actually designer stones on them. They were bedazzled or whatever you want to call it. And so it was just a, a glorious uh, occasion, the majesty, the, uh, as you looked at the, the temple from the east, the, the temple would have this east uh, side just covered in plated gold. And so the sun shining off of it would just be brilliant. As we mentioned last week, there were tons of um, gifts and votives and all these types of things put everywhere in the temple. So it was just adorned in, in worship and luxury towards God. And they were just admiring the, the massive stones and how everything looked. <clears throat> and Jesus, in response to this in verse 6, says, For as what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And so he burst their bubble there. So in response to Jesus' devastating prophecy that everything they're going to see is going to be toppled, turn over, become desolate, his disciples as, and Jesus, as they move out of the city onto the Mount of Olives, it says in Mark 13's account uh, that James and Peter and John and Andrew, they came privately to Jesus and asked some important questions about this. In verse 7, we read, when, the, when will these things happen, they asked, and what will be the sign that this is about to take place? These are important questions. If you remember last week, uh, Matthew's account, Matthew 24, which is a parallel account of this, and also Mark 13, Matthew gives us a little more fuller understanding of what they were asking at this time. Matthew 24, 3 says, they asked, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And so they're not just simply asking, hey, what's going to happen to the temple? But what, how does this, it seems like everything is going to come to end, an end. How do we know what is going on? Disciples wanted to know when these things would happen and what would be the signs that they would know about his coming and the end of the age. And so Jesus, in verses 8 through 11, lists several signs that Matthew's account identifies as birth pains that would be the signs that would, would happen with greater intensity until the coming of Christ, like birth pains. And so the Lord lists false messiahs, he lists wars, he lists... Nations rising against nation, earthquakes, famines, pestilence, fearful events, and great signs from heaven. So all those things Matthew calls uh, really the beginning of birth pains. 
They are the things that would intensify until the coming of Christ. And Jesus says that of these things, don't, don't follow the false Messiah. He says, first of all, don't, don't follow false Messiah. Anybody coming and says that I'm the Messiah or the time is coming, here it is, don't listen to them. And he would later go on to say in Matthew's account that as the east, you know, lightning flashes from the east of the west, so will be the return of Christ. In other words, you will know when I am coming back. But don't follow false messiahs, and don't be afraid of all these events that are going to come upon the earth. These things must happen, that the end is not yet. And then verses 12 through 19, Jesus says to his disciples, before all those things, before those events that lead into the coming of uh, my second coming, basically, Jesus is saying is that you are going to be persecuted by the Jews. You're going to be brought before Gentile leaders. You're going to be betrayed by your own families. And some of you are going to be put to death, and everyone's going to hate you because of me. So basically, he's talking to the disciples, don't worry about the earthquakes and stuff. Worry about your own families, you know, and the things that are about to come upon you, because some of you will be put to death. And actually, uh, 11 of the, well, uh, 11 of the second set of 11, 11 of the 12, you'll know that if you know what I'm talking about, Judas fell away. He was replaced by Matthias. It's recorded that uh, in uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs that they all died horrible deaths, except for John. And so Jesus exhorts them in verse 19 to stand firm and you will win life because he says, but not a hair of your head in verse 18 will perish, meaning that although they might kill you, I've got you. They can't mess with your eternal state. You have eternal life. Persevere to the end. And we finished last week by focusing on the fact that those who are saved will be those who persevere in faith. We're not saved because we persevere. It's evidence that we actually have saving faith is that we persevere just as Christ persevered. Does that make sense? It's the difference between works and being saved by grace through faith. But we see this, uh, that the evidence of true faith will be the evidence of their perseverance. Unlike the person who, in the, the sowing of the seed, that parable, who had that hard heart, and the word came down on the heart, they received it with joy, but because of persecution, what happened? They turned away. And Jesus is going to talk about this a little bit more. So saving faith is an, is an enduring faith. And God is the one, by the way, who will complete that work that he began in you. Amen? Aren't you glad that you don't have to muster it up? You simply have to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He started it in you. It was his idea. I guess who's going to finish it? Who's going to bring you across the finish line? Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we see that tension in Scripture to where faith is demonstrated by our works, by what we do. Amen? So we don't turn back. And God is the one who will be faithful to complete what she began. And we can rest in that. And so we pick up in verse 20. Jesus is going back to the question about the destruction of the temple. They wanted to know when that would happen and what would be the sign of that. We know from Matthew's account, they wanted to know when his return would be and the end of the age. But Jesus is focusing on the destruction of the temple, or the destruction of Jerusalem. How would they know it was going to happen and what would be the signs that its desolation is near? 
And so Jesus says to them in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Jesus is letting the disciples know that the destruction of Jerusalem is going to come at the hands of surrounding armies and that when they see those armies beginning to surround, you know that desolation is near. That would be one of the signs that they would know. And that word desolation is a key word here and also in the other accounts. It's interesting that at this point in Matthew and Mark's account, It gives us more insight to what Jesus is speaking about. Let me read those sections for you. Uh, In Matthew 24, 15 through 21, Jesus says at this point, So when you see standing in in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation spoken of through Daniel the prophet, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of his house. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it would be in those days for pregnant women and for nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. Mark's account also at this point, says in Mark 13, 14 through 19, he says, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one in this housetop go down and either take out anything. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for the pregnant woman and for the nursing mothers. Pray that it will not place in, take, take place in winter because those days will be of distress unequaled from the beginning of when God created the world until now and will never to be equaled again. And so Luke's account says that on one hand, the sign that they need to look for the destruction of, of the temple is, is the surrounding armies. However, Matthew and Mark at this point, they're saying that the sign of that destruction is near is the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, Jesus says, which I believe is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, which says that the Antichrist is going to stand in the temple of Jerusalem declaring himself to be God. This is the abomination that causes desolation. Daniel chapter 9, 11, and 12 all refer to the abomination that causes desolation. In the book of Daniel, there's a prophecy of 70 weeks, which I believe uh, gives us a time frame concerning the nation of Israel, God's dealing with the nation of Israel. In the book of Daniel, there's a 490-year period that was prophesied, time that was given from um, uh, the time that Artaxerxes called to rebuild the temple until basically until the return of Christ's second coming. And this 490-year period was the time broken up into seven-year gaps, seven-year periods, which Daniel calls weeks. And some of yours says groups of seven or sevens. Uh, Basically, a group of seven years, one week is seven years. And so the first 69 weeks or group of seven years, which comes out to 483 years, was the amount of time until the Messiah's first coming and crucifixion. And you can go from that decree that that king gave all the way until when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and you see that he was what? He was cut off 483 years later. The remaining seven weeks 
you know, we're wondering, what, well, what happens? The last seven weeks was a separate event, it seems. It was to come about in the future, and that's what we believe is the great tribulation, or the tribulation period, a seven-year period where Christ is going to, where, where God's focus is back on the nation of Israel. And that seven-year period, that tribulation, at the beginning of that tribulation, I believe the scriptures teach that the Antichrist is revealed at that point. He makes a firm covenant with the nation of Israel for a seven-year period, ushering in peace in the Middle East, and he's going to offer protection to Israel, and the nation will accept his offer. And in the middle of that seven-year period, three and a half years in, Daniel says in 927, Basically, that at that point, he's going to stop the sacrifices and the grain offerings. It says, on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decree, the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. And so the Antichrist breaks his covenant at this point in the middle of this, this, this tribulation period. He goes into the rebuilt temple of Jerusalem, into the Holy of Holies, and declares himself to be God, as we read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, when he goes in there. And that's what starts the great tribulation, all these things coming to a total end. Now, you have to know that not everybody believes this, okay? So just realize that this is a view that I am convicted by, that I believe, that I teach, um, but there are other brothers and sisters in the Lord who perhaps view this in, in a different light. But I would encourage you to study the word, go after it, and find out what the Lord teaches and be convinced by it. But it is at this point that I believe the great tribulation begins, that final three and a half year period before Christ returns, during which God's vengeance is poured out totally upon the earth. He is pouring out those, the trumpet blast and the bowls of wrath and all these things we read about, about in Revelation. And all of the birth pains come into their greatest intensity and the seals have been broken. Now the trumpet blasts and the, and the, and the bowls of wrath are being poured out. And I believe this is when, why Jesus is saying in Luke 21, then when you see these things happening, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. And let those in the country not enter the city, for it is a time of punishment or vengeance and fulfillment that all has been written. So yes, there is a sense in which Jesus' prophecy about the destruction of the temple was fulfilled in the nearness in 70 AD, 40 years after this, in which the, the temple was destroyed by Titus, uh, by Titus, the Roman general. But like all the other signs that are birth pains, they come into their greater intensity, their greater tribulation later on, just before Christ returns. And so the prophecy that Jesus gives concerning the destruction of the temple back in verse 6, I believe, like many prophecy, has a near and far fulfillment. Near in maybe 70 AD, but its far fulfillment is in that three and a half years right before Christ's return, the time of Jacob's trouble, or as we know it, the great tribulation, the time that Jesus says, there was something happening on the earth that has, will never be like it and never be like that since. We would have known about that, don't you think? It's all described there, this time period, this last three and a half years in, in, in Revelation chapter 6 through 18. Jerusalem will be surrounded. Horrific slaughter will take place at the hands of the Antichrist from that point on. 
and the world will gather together against Christ at his return. The great tribulation, that final three and a half years, that day of vengeance will begin at that halfway point with the Antichrist declaring himself to be God. It's interesting how many um, uh, of, of us uh, in, in well, different religions are, are waiting for their Messiah to come and how it will all converge, I believe, upon that person. Mark says in uh, chapter 13, verse 14, when you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand then let those in Judea flee to the mountains. Matthew, again, 24, 15 through 22 says, so when you see the abomination that causes, uh, seeing the holy place, the, the abomination that causes desolation is spoken of by Daniel. Let the reader understand. Let everybody get out of town. Jesus is not merely referencing the destruction of the temple, I believe, because he says in, in Matthew uh, 24, 22, he says, in those days of not... Well, he says in 21, it says, For there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect of those days, unless it was shortened, basically. God had to cut it short because otherwise there would just be nothing left. Even the elect would be gone. So Jesus is not merely referencing the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, but a period of time that is unparalleled on the earth. Church. It is all leading to the point of Christ's return. These things are going to happen with greater intensity until our Savior comes. Back in Luke 21, 23, how dreadful it would be in those days. We're in verse 23. And for nursing mothers, there'll be great distress in the land and, and wrath against this people they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So I believe that we are in what is called the time of the Gentiles or the age of the church, whatever you want to call it. The focus has turned from the nation of Israel towards the Gentiles for the last 2,000 years. The focus will return back to the nation of Israel at the beginning of the tribulation that final seven-year period of the sage, during which a lot's going to happen. 144,000 Jews will preach the gospel. An angel from heaven will declare the everlasting gospel. There'll be a great revival during that time and massive slaughter of the saints at the same time. And at the time, at that time, the Gentiles will end when Jesus, that time of the Gentiles will end when Jesus comes back and touches down and says, we're done. It's over, my kingdom now. So I believe there's a sense in which his kingdom has come in the hearts of his people, but I think his physical manifestation of his kingdom is going to be established and manifest on earth. And the signs that are just before the return of Christ will be unparalleled as God's wrath is being poured out upon the world, verse 25, and there will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars. As we mentioned last week, right before the return of Christ, the signs in the heavens will reach their zenith. God is going to extinguish the sun and the moon and the stars. We know that um, the, the trumpet judgments, I believe, will wipe out one-third of the sun and the stars and the, and the moon and, and 
you know, in that period of the great tribulation, but ultimately all the lights are going to go out right before the return of Christ. Matthew 24 verse 29 declares immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Verse 25 of Luke, second half, says, On the earth the nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring of the tossing of the sea. People will faint from terror, apprehension of what is coming upon the world, for the heavenly bodies will be what? Shaken. The sun, the moon, and the stars will be failing. The tides will be all messed up. The earth will be experiencing upheaval like nothing we've ever experienced. Isaiah 13, 6-13 illustrates in poetic language, I believe, what the day of the Lord is like, the day of the Lord, the day of wrath. He says here in Isaiah 13, 6-13, Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction from the Almighty it will come. Therefore all hands will be feeble, every human heart will melt. They will be dismayed, pangs and agony will seize them, and they will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another, their faces will be aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel and wrath and fierce anger to make the land of a uh, to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. From the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark. At its rising, and the moon will not shed its light. I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the, of the arrogance and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind than the gold of Orpher, whatever that is, to place. There's not much of it, and people will be like that, not many of them. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake out of its place at the wrath of the Lord of the hosts in the days of his fierce anger. And so you can see the troubles that Jesus is saying will come upon the world and the great signs in the heavens that will bring about the return of Jesus. It is going to be horrific. This isn't taught much in church, I don't think. (laughs) Focus on happy Jesus. And yet, this is Jesus himself declaring these things that will happen. This is where it's all heading to. In his last week, in his last days, what is he focusing on? Verse 27, and at that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Wow. I like Matthew's account. It gives us a little bit more. Matthew 24, 27 through 31. For as lightning comes from, for as lightning that comes from the east is visible, even in the west. How many of you have seen lightning? It just lights up the sky, right? Matthew says it's like that. This is what Jesus is saying. So will be, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever there is a carcass, the vultures will gather, and immediately after the distress of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from the sky, and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. Verse 30 says, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. They're going to see the creator coming to the creation and we, whoever remains, will, will mourn. They will weep. 
Luke says in verse 28, when these signs begin to take place, stand up and lift your heads because your redemption is drawing near. While the rest of the world is is saying, let the rocks fall upon us, may the mountains fall upon us so that they can hide from the Lord. He says of the redeemed, who I believe are the those who are saved in the tribulation through the preaching of the 144,000, through that great revelation, who have survived that, will stand up at that time. Instead of falling down, they will stand up. As the world is falling down, they will stand up and say, thank you, Lord Jesus. My redemption draws near. Amen. Well, everybody else is in fear, fear of judgment, fear of the wrath, all those types of things. They are looking to him and saying, my Savior. He's coming with power and great glory. Again, I don't believe the church will be going through the tribulation, but will be raptured before this. And so I believe this is speaking to those who are saved during the tribulation, who have managed to survive, that when they see those signs, they are to look up. Their redemption draws near. Jesus reiterates this, verse 29. He told them this parable, look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. How many of us are, are looking out at, the, at, at the, you know, the, the trees right now? I mean, this is a perfect time for this. You're seeing the buds start to come, and that frost probably killed some of them, but, or that frozen, whatever that was that happened to us. I mean, they're probably just going to stay there in time and die and wither. No, but this is different. When you see these things that, that it's about to happen, right? It's about to explode. Things are about to happen in our valley, amen? In a month, this is going to be a totally different place. We know that because we can see the signs of summer coming. Jesus is saying when that generation who sees all these things happen, when, when those things are happening on that event, that is, it's going to happen. That generation is going to see the return of the Lord. Even so, when you see these things happen, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Underline that verse, verse 33. Know that heaven and earth will pass away, but what will not pass away? His words. Brothers and sisters, the words of Jesus Christ are more sure than the sun rising tomorrow. They're more sure than the chair you are sitting in. Then the tides, the ocean, the sun, the stars, his words will endure through all of that. Amen. You need to hear that when your health is failing, when things aren't going right, when our little tribulations come. What do we rest on? We rest on what he says. I love verse 33, I do. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You know, I was convicted this week. I was listening to something by R.C. Sproul, and, and he was answering a question about, um, is it enough for me to read my Bible 15 minutes a week? And he just said, no. He said, no, it's not. 
He said it would be a miracle if the church read their Bible 30 minutes a week. And, and I'm not saying this to, you know, uh, it, was just, it was just convicting, I think, it, it how well, the things we struggle with, the priorities we have, I think. Um, and, he, and he went to Psalm 1, he says, what does Psalm 1 say? You know, don't walk in all these types of ways, but blessed is the man who, what? Does not walk in all these ways, but he focuses on the Word of God. And on the Word of God, he meditates how much? Day and night. You can't even begin to scratch the surface in 15 minutes. You can't. It's just not enough time to soak. We need to marinate. We need to dig in so that we are men and women of the Word. Jesus says, my word is more sure than everything else you've got going on in your life. I, if, if that's true, then what should I probably be wanting to know? What Jesus says. What do I want to be building my life upon? What he says. What happens, I think, is we are struggling, not from a lack of information, but I think a lack of depth with the Lord, just spending time with Him. I'm convicted like you are. But meditate in that word day and night. The generation that sees those, these things, you know, and Jesus says there in verse 33, man, heaven and earth is going to pass away. My words will never pass away. Upon hearing all this, I'm sure His disciples were a little bit dismayed after hearing all these things that are going to come on the earth. And by the way, hey, what's that part about I'm going to be slaughtered before all these things happen anyways? I'm sure the disciples were upset. Right? But imagine Jesus just downloaded all this information. What would your heart be going through? This is verse 34. This is be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. When you hear about that, when you hear about all these things, the things that are going to go on, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down. Sounds like depression to me. With carousing and, and drunkenness and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you like a sudden trap that tells you about the nature of these events. Although there are birth pains, that, that period is just going to take the world by storm. And we're not going to be ready for it. Jesus is, is saying, verse 35, for it will come on all who, those who live on the face of the whole earth. It's not just Jerusalem. He's saying it's going to happen to everyone, everywhere. Jesus is exhorting his disciples on how to live in light of the Lord's return. In Matthew's account, he gives us three examples of what we need to be vigilant of. He uses the example of Noah who was building an ark faithfully until it was completed and then suddenly the door was closed. Destruction came upon the whole earth, right? Noah was building the ark. Everybody just got used to Noah building the ark and then all of a sudden the door closed and boom, they all died. He also uses the example of a man whose house was robbed. Jesus said, if he'd known what hour the robber was coming, he would have stopped him, but he didn't and because he wasn't vigilant, the robber came to surprise him, Right? He uses 
And the last was a story of a man who had a, with a good slave and a wicked slave. The good slave managed his master's goods well and was prepared if he returned at any moment, right? The wicked slave said, my master isn't coming back for a long time. So he began to beat his fellow servants and slaves. And then he ate and drank with the drunks. And the master was coming on a day when he did not expect. The good slave was found anticipating his master's return. He was to be rewarded by putting, being put in charge of all his possessions, Correct. He was being faithful, he was being watching, he was persevering, he was being diligent. And the wicked servant was cut in pieces and assigned with a place with the hypocrites, a place of weeping and a gnashing of teeth. Those are three examples that Jesus gives in, at this point in Matthew's account. And Luke similarly, similarly says in verses 34 and 35, Be careful or your hearts will be weighed down by carousing and drunkenness and the anxieties of life, and that day will close in on you like a sudden trap. For it will come on all those who live on the whole face of the earth. Verse 36. Here's the application. Be always on the watch. Pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Watch and what? Watch and pray. that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen. What is all that is about to happen? All that stuff we read about, right? Watch and pray. Now, there is a sense in which I know I'm saved. Amen? Yay. And so I can do whatever I want. No. Watch and pray. And there's this tension all throughout Scripture that those who are saved are, are, are pretty much those defined as those who are watching and praying. Not they're saved because they're watching and praying, but that, that's what typifies a Christian whose hope is not in the world, but is in Jesus. We're about Him. We're waiting for Him. That's why when you look in the New Testament, they were all expecting His return. Amen? Whether they believed in the rapture or not, I don't care. They were looking at Jesus. He is it. Is that what's happening? Or are our hearts weighed down? Are we those who are prone towards drunkenness and prone towards the anxieties of life and all these types of things? Or are we those who are watching and praying that we may be able to escape all that is about to happen. There are several verses about those things. I think we, we have the idea of salvation that's very just a loose Western view of it. We don't realize how narrow the path is and who those are that are truly defined as those who follow Jesus Christ. And when Paul lists a bunch of things that identify those as those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven, we try to write those things off. And say, yeah, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm three for eight or whatever it is, you know. I just think there's, when we are born again, there's a sense of holiness that comes into our lives. And I'm not speaking as someone who is perfected. I am being sanctified. I am a man who's weak and sinful and all those types of things, but that's not the standard. I think the Holy Spirit 
would seek for us to be separated from the world church, not of it. We're in it, but we're not of it. We're his. We're not theirs. We've been bought out of this. We're part of his kingdom. Be always on watch and pray that you may be able to escape. I believe that those who do escape what is about to happen are those who are anticipating the return of Jesus. I believe that is what saving faith longs for. They long for Jesus. They long for their return. Like Paul, man, I really love to be with the Lord right now, but it's better that I'm here with you for your sake, so to speak, you know? That's what Paul is saying. Someone who is saved is, is living like Noah in faithful expectation of God's deliverance. Amen? Like that servant anticipating his return. And those who call upon the name of Jesus, we're always to be on watch. We're to be praying that we may be able to escape all these things that are about to happen, the judgment, and to stand before the Son of Man at what I believe is the mercy seat. And we have confidence that we are saved because of his, his word to us is surer than creation. Amen? That we are saved by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ upon the cross alone. That we are no longer under God's wrath, but under grace children of God, the redeemed, saved by his grace. And I know that the Lord warns us and presses us to stand and persevere, and that is absolutely true, right? But at the same time, we stand upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. And he who began that good work in us is faithful to complete it until that day. I want to close with 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1 through 11, speaking of escaping the wrath. Now concerning the times... In the seasons, brothers, you have no need to anything that I've, I've written to you about. You know, you understand what's going on. You understand the tree that's coming forward and all that good stuff, the buds. And For you yourselves are fully aware that, aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden disruption will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day will surprise you like a thief, for you are children of the light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be what? Sober, vigilant. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and, a, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us to what? Wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, whether we live or die, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Those who are living 
in a way that resembles the night will be taken by storm. Those who live in the day will not. I don't know men's hearts. I don't know how to do all that. God knows whether you're saved or not. But the Lord makes things pretty clear. Are you living in the day or are you living in the night? You know what I mean? For God has not destined us to wrath, but to have seen salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. God has not destined for us wrath. Now, it very well could be that, that the church goes through you know, the tribulation or things are different. And, and okay, well, how, is, how does that work out with the wrath of God? I think ultimately it is the judgment and the separation from God throughout all eternity that we need to be ultimately fearful of. Because we can look at all these events and we check out of this life today. And you are standing before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and you will be judged. And without Christ, you're separated into eternity apart from him. Hell, and it will not end. But in Christ... Those, that punishment was paid fully, and we are justified. And at the resurrection, we will be glorified. And I believe we will be rewarded before Christ. And so I think we are either walking in, I mean, Jesus declares we are either walking in one kingdom or the other. And how we walk and how we live is the evidence of those things. God has not destined us for wrath. I think that's the evidence. And the way that evidence is displayed is that we're walking in the light and not in darkness. We belong to the day. We're sober. We're vigilant. Amen? And I think that's a, that's a wake-up call for a lot of us. Me too. But this morning, if that does not describe you, if you are asleep, if you are weighed down, if you are off the path, the Holy Spirit is hopefully speaking to you this morning. And, and if that is happening, do not deny what the Lord is, is saying to you. That's God drawing you towards Him, convicting you of what's going on, drawing you so that you will have assurance, so that you will have peace, so that you will know that you are not under His wrath. Now, I have to say that some of us are saved and, and we have different emotional makeups and all that type of stuff and we, we struggle with our salvation. We need to base our lives upon what he says, not how we feel. Amen? For those of us who are more of the emotional sway. On what he says, not how you feel. Children are often led by how they feel. Amen? Adults are often led, are supposed to be led, by what is said. So let his word dwell richly in your heart. Be convinced of his truth, his gospel in your heart. But if this morning it does not describe you, and the Bible says that this day will come upon you like a thief in the night, and if not that day, the judgment of God, and you will not escape, but it is not the fearful things, really, that we need to be totally, that are happening to the earth that we need to be fearful about. Again, I said it's that we stand before the creator of the universe and be judged. And we must give an answer. 
But today, God has made in a way of escape. God has made a sure way of escape. What does it mean to be saved? And this is why I think we need to really not back away from these verses that are so hardcore. We need to double down on them. Amen? That this world is not going to end in roses. It will end with the return of Christ and there will be a great separation that happens. So I think that as we look at this, we need to realize and preach the escape. Amen? The gospel, which means good news. How can there be any good news of this? That people escape the wrath of God through the grace of God. And that is in Jesus Christ alone. That God, seeing what was coming upon this rebellion earth, sent his son into the middle of that earth to die on behalf of those who would call upon his name to be saved out of the world. And he extends that offer to you today. If you have yet to say, God, I am a sinner. I know I'm headed for your judgment. I call out for mercy. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe that he died and he rose again. I don't deserve your forgiveness, but here it is. I ask for your forgiveness and mercy. And Romans 10 says, if you confess with your mouth and if you believe Jesus died and he rose again, you will be saved. God is not making you jump through 5,000 hoops. It is through faith in what Jesus already did through you. Belief. How does that work? You call out to him and you say, Lord, I'm a sinner. Forgive me. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross. And you turn from your sin and you follow Jesus. Amen? And you don't look back. You keep going. Are you going to stumble and fall? Church, everybody said yes. But we keep going because we're looking at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. So today, God has made a way of escape, his son. He sent his son to die in our place so that your sins will be forgiven and that you would be made righteous before him, declared innocent, and given eternal life. And I encourage you to receive him because I am a recipient of that grace, undeserving. And how many of us are recipients of that grace? Amen. Repent, believe, and follow. As we come to the end of the service, we want to finish with communion. The night before Jesus was betrayed, before he was killed, what happened? He took his disciples, he sat down at a table, And they had bread and they had a cup. There was a lot more that was going on, but there was a meal. And he said, this is my body that was broken for you. And he broke the bread and they all took it. And he took the cup. He says, this is the blood of my new covenant. It was just shed for you. And they took it and they all shared it. The new covenant is not the covenant of the law, but is the covenant of grace. That through his perfect work, we are saved. And we come to the table to say, thank you for saving me. You are my savior. I remember you. I love you. I celebrate you. 
Is there any wicked way in me? Of course, remove it, Lord. If there's someone I need to give, forgive and reconcile with, let's have that happen. Amen? We walk in the light, not in darkness this morning. So let's pray and I encourage you to come to the table. Take the, um, take the elements, drink them. When, at the very end of the service, before we go, pass them towards the ends of the aisle, stick them in the seat rows at the edge. There's little cup holders there. But the most important thing is that you focus on your Savior and enjoy his goodness towards you, the way of escape, Jesus Christ, amen? He took the wrath of God for you. Lord God, we come before you and we thank you for your son who preached it like it was. The end of the world is coming. Things are going to get intense you are going to break through the clouds and return to the earth and set up your eternal reign. And I pray that you would please drag as many today that would call upon your name out of this place. And if you've never received the Lord as your Savior and today is the day that you want to give your heart to them, raise your hand. Not that raising your hand saves you, but it helps me identify you and I can bug you later. And we'll pray for you. If that's you, raise your hand. Lord bless you. <laughs> you do. Young and old, amen. God bless you. God's calling us to repentance. Let's walk in the light, church. Amen. Father, have your way. Commune with your church now. In the name of Jesus, amen.